um, which is awfully cold, but I'm glad um, there's so many people can I borrow um, the book. I'm very happy for many reasons. First, it's actually one of the very few book launches in which I get to chair, so it's, it's good and it's good to discuss um, for various reasons. Um, well, Kath Collins uh, is a lecturer now in the Diego Portales University in Chile. If you talk with her in Spanish, you would see that she's half Chilean, in, even if she's not Chilean at all. Um, she, um, I mean, I think this is a very good project, and I'm, I'm very glad to um, have it today uh, for many reasons. One is, those of you that have done a PhD know that it's very complicated then to follow up and write a book. Some of us don't know because we never did, but um, <laughs> so those of you that have done don't know that that's a very complicated. Uh, even more when it's a, it's a project that is extremely important, I think, both in academic terms but also um, in political and um, social terms. And I think that's one of the things that um, Kath uh, is great at, is understanding that academia is important, but that uh, has a purpose which is um, very much about how to make um, transitional justice work, work better, etc., etc. Much in many ways like her own um, thesis supervisor, I think. Uh, and third is because I have known Kat since she was at the Institute, um, I value her work a lot. And uh, even if um, I don't get the book, that's the reason it's on plastic, it's because it's for someone else. Um, I have read a little bit of it because she sent it um, in PDF, and it's, I'm very, very happy to present. And I'm even happier because we will have as commentarista Alan Angel, who as I say every time I have to introduce him here, does not need an introduction in a place like the Latin American Center and does not need an introduction when um, the discussion is going to be about Chile, because he's probably one of the best people um, talking about Chile and one that has also been an academic but also done a lot for Chilean uh, political rights, human rights, etc. Can I also thank, because this is actually a joint uh, event with the Transitional Justice Network from Oxford, mm. so thank you very much um, for the Taylor organizing it and for those of you that come from um, that side, and the book and the talk will be Post-Transitional Justice, Human Rights Trials in Chile and El Salvador. So thank you very much. And Okay, <clears throat> shout if you can't hear me, but I'll try and talk loudly. If you haven't been to a book launch before, the normal format is for the author to sit looking modest and mildly embarrassed <laughs> while two or three people heap praise on the book, subtly indicating that they probably could have done it better, but even so, and, and with the publishers in the background hoping to increase the sales. Well, there's plenty to praise to heap upon the book, and I will say immediately that it is a very important book. It's a very original book. Uh, it covers a period that hasn't really been treated in much depth before, uh, which is to say the trials that have taken place after the initial uh, transitional settlements. It's also extraordinarily well documented, and it's also very readable and very accessible. So I say anything else? No. <laughs> um, I think I'd just like to start by drawing attention to the work that Cass is doing in the uh, observatory, in the Human Rights Observatory in the Diego Portales University in Chile. It's extremely important because we know a great deal really about the numbers who disappeared, the numbers who were tortured. We know a bit about the politics of transition. We know very, very little about the uh, proceedings after that, the, the trials, uh, what they accomplished, uh, under what sort of laws, 
well, what the census is and so on and so forth. This is covered in great detail in the Observatory's monthly reports, and I do recommend it. It's also, of course, <coughs> very central to the themes of the book. Now, <coughs> the, um, this uh, book is based upon Kath's doctoral thesis, of which I was fortunate to be one of the examiners, and I suppose I could again shortcut and read the examiner's report, but uh, perhaps not. Um, I, I want just, first of all, to uh, highlight the, the real importance of this issue, not just uh, in legal terms, but also morally and politically, uh, at the time of the transition in Chile, uh, and also arguably for Argentina, perhaps less so for some other countries. In fact, I think you could argue that one of the, in fact, the major political issue at the time of the transition in Chile was precisely human rights. And, and why was that? Well, uh, Chile had a long established tradition of uh, democracy, legalism, constitutionalism, and it was seen that dealing with human rights was an extremely important step in recovering that tradition of reasserting democratic values in Chile uh, and of rejecting all the excuses that were put forward for uh, authoritarian rule. <clears throat> but it was also extremely important that the process itself was according to due process of law. It was not issuing state diktat, it was a way of showing that the rule of law would be applied equally to all people, whatever the accusations uh, made against them. Again, another very strong tradition uh, in Chile. Um, and of course, there was very considerable pressure uh, domestically in Chile from the human rights groups that were sort of incessant in their uh, demands for, for justice, for truth. Uh, human rights associations of those who disappeared, those who were executed, uh, human rights lawyers, investigative journalists and so on uh, were active from, from the very moment of the transition and, and continue to be, of course, one of the themes of the book uh, to the present time. Uh, El Salvador is very different. It's a very contrasting case, and it's quite a courageous uh, case to choose to, to contrast with Chile because it is so different. The story is really much more complicated because violations were committed by both sides, and in a sense the initial imperative in El Salvador was not for, for truth and justice but for peace. Peace was the important imperative to a society which was so badly torn apart by civil war. <coughs> uh, turning to, to the book itself, uh, there's one theme that runs through the book, which is that, the, that there's a real dilemma that faced the transitional governments and post-transitional governments as well, which is that the, the difficulty of reconciling two rather different aims. On the one hand, you have the demand for truth and justice, uh, but on the other hand, you have the political need for creating a stable order to avoid any sort of recurrence of authoritarian rule. So you have, in a sense, absolute standards of truth and justice on the one hand, and the like, rather more circumstantial <coughs> uh, demands for political stability. Uh, you can see the dilemma that faces uh, governments in this sort of position. Uh, if the pursuit of justice leads to <coughs> uh, so much resentment in the military, it happened, of course, in Argentina precisely in that way, so much resentment on, on the right that, there's a, that if there were a real danger of the democratic order being um, uh, threatened and overturned yet again, you can understand how governments would feel the need to proceed with some degree of caution. Uh, in the case of Chile, of course, after the uh, initial Truth Commission, uh, the governments became rather, rather passive, another of the important themes in the book. And of course the courts were packed with Pinochet appointees and they were hardly very keen 
uh, on pursuing these sorts of issues. Um, so really, at, at the time of the transition, um, uh, the outlook for justice beyond the initial uh, truth commissions uh, seemed to be uh, rather uh, pessimistic. Now, in fact, this has not proven to be the case, uh, and the, the starting point for Cass's argument is basically, uh, I'll outline really what the book is about, and then make some comments uh, about it. But outlining the book in the first place, the uh, argument is that the uh, initial settlements <coughs> were structured within the confines of amnesty laws, which uh, obviously covered the crimes committed by uh, the military governments, at least in Chile, up until 1978. And it's proven impossible to annul these amnesties even if the governments perhaps were not quite as active as they might have been in attempting to do so. But these have not proven to be the obstacles that you might have thought. Uh, and there have been, in words that she quotes, uh, recent eruptions of attempted prosecutions of human rights violators. So, uh, if, the government, if the governments have proven, the government in Chile, uh, and in El Salvador too, for that matter, have been rather passive after the initial truth commissions. Um, what's driving the process? Who's pushing for trials? Who's pushing for justice now uh, in the, 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 the post-transitional phase? Her answer, and I quote her, is <coughs> that the primary drivers of change are the, quote, legally literate, domestic, pro-accountability actors, plus domestic judicial change over time. And that's the kind of argument that runs through the whole book. But then, of course, she poses questions such as whether justice is desirable if it has very profound adverse political costs, whether you can administer justice, how do you do it, and who do you hold responsible, which, of course, is a, uh, a difficult theme and is one problem that's perplexed truth um, uh, justice movements in many other countries. Now, what do we mean by post-transitional justice? What's the difference between post-transitional justice and transitional justice? She makes six uh, elements to, to constitute post-transitional justice. Uh, the first one is that there's a, an, an emphasis now on the quality and the reach and improvement of democracy. It's about improving democracy. Uh, another one is that it questions the initial settlements, especially the failure to prosecute, and she's quite critical of governments in Chile uh, for failing to be as active as it might have been uh, in the prosecution of those committed abuses. So hence it's driven largely by non-state actors, human rights groups, uh, lawyers, journalists and so on. Uh, it takes place in a variety of sites and with a variety of actors. Uh, it's got much broader aims than transitional justice, although sometimes some of those aims can actually be in conflict. Uh, and finally, it has a much more international character now, that there's a possibility in some circumstances of seeking justice, not necessarily in the domestic context, but on the international stage. Now, <coughs> the, the central argument that she puts forward is that the single most important factor uh, are the changes in the attitude of the judiciary to accountability in general, and towards new interpretations of amnesties in particular. So really, in a way, this is why trials are so important, 
trials represent a significant shift in the attitude of the judiciary in Chile towards a, some degree of punishment for those who committed abuses. And of course those judges are, are pushed all the time by the private human rights groups and their lawyers. So really it becomes quite complicated now. You have an amnesty law which actually prohibits you from investigating. So how can you circumvent it? Well, lawyers find ways of getting around things and one of the very earliest uh, attempts to do so was in fact by President Eilvin himself who argued that a disappearance effectively means a kidnapping. Kidnapping is not covered by the amnesty law therefore you have to investigate the person who disappeared even if that person has disappeared for 15 years or so in order to establish what actually happened. And there are other ways as well of interpreting the amnesty laws perhaps you can give more examples, <coughs> to provide <coughs> for this degree of judicial uh, flexibility. Um, so, you, you, you have the trials, but of course some trials are more important than other trials, <coughs> and you do get what Kath calls the emblematic cases. Uh, for example, and the most obvious one uh, was the arrest of uh, Pinochet uh, in England, and all the judicial uh, persecution of Pinochet that then took place in Chile, which undoubtedly helped to accelerate the process of further trials for human rights abuses uh, in the case uh, in that country. There have been earlier cases, the case of General Contreras, who was the head of the secret police service, intelligence service, Dina, uh, who was involved in the, in the uh, dreadful assassination of Orlando Letelier in Washington in 1976. Well, uh, assassinations abroad were not covered by amnesty, so he could actually be prosecuted. And they think he's serving something like a hundred sentences or something dramatically at the, at the moment. So there are these e enormously significant cases which have a kind of multiplier effect on cases uh, elsewhere. Now, <coughs> Clearly, these two countries are very different in their experiences, and I'll just mention those quite briefly. Uh, in Chile, there's been almost continuous legal action since 1990, uh, even though reforms of the judicial system have been very limited. Uh, there was one significant one in 1997. So in Chile, it's been an advance through interpretations, reinterpretations of, of the existing laws. Um, although this is the interesting point that Kath makes is that there's not some kind of linear progression towards the more enlightened judiciary there are, uh, it's slightly erratic the whole process which does bring into question the sort of complete commitment of the judiciary in Chile to investigating uh, human rights abuses. In Salvador you have a rather major transformation uh, of the legal system but it's been very passive in the pursuit of justice uh, in Chile, the human rights lawyers have played an extraordinarily important role in the whole process. In El Salvador, they've been rather marginal. Uh, in Chile, you had the advantage that you had very good data. Uh, a bit like Nazi Germany or the Stasi in East Germany, they did like to collect data. So you had information on the people who were arrested, the people who were tortured. And of course, a lot of the data emerged from cases presented uh, by the Vicaria de la Solidaridad, an extraordinary organization of the church, which from the moment the coup began, the coup occurred, 
began a process of defending human rights, an extraordinarily valiant attempt. I don't know how many cases of habeas corpus were presented to the Supreme Court, and about three or four were actually uh, acted upon. So you have a, a, a very full, accurate database uh, of violations. It, it was clearly a much more messy scene in Salvador with violations taking place on both sides and uh, very poorly documented. Now, there's been a great deal of interest and attention uh, recently in, well not quite so recently, in the international dimension as uh, people become familiar with the concept of the human rights cascade, you know, that the whole international process sets uh, rulings and laws which sort of filter down to other, other, uh, other areas. Cathy is a bit sceptical about this and argues that the role of international factors has been uh, exaggerated. Uh, uh, the arrest of Pinochet in London was preceded by some significant cases against him and there wasn't some kind of concerted plan between Chilean activists and the Spanish uh, lawyers to uh, seek his extradition and imprisonment. Uh, it's very different in Salvador where the international agencies, the UN, various US agencies were very active, in fact constituted the personnel of the truth commissions but really tended to marginalize the human rights uh, community and to make the human rights something imposed rather than generated uh, from um, within. Uh, what's been interesting about Salvador is some cases, some civil cases, have been presented in the US, um, but that has very little domestic impact. It's proven easier to lobby for human rights violations, violations uh, in the US than in El Salvador. Now, <coughs> Uh, I'm no expert on Salvador, so I'll just concentrate on the, on the Chilean case. Um, <coughs> this is an ongoing discussion I've had with Catherine. I usually lose the argument, so I'll be careful how I phrase it. Um, she tends to be rather critical of the uh, caution of the alien government in the pursuit of justice, and even more so uh, uh, of the governments that followed the first Elbin government. Elbin was the first president elected in 1989, took power in 1990, and lasted a, a, a transitional sort of four years. Uh, Elbin became famous for his statement that he would pursue justice as far as possible. Justicia in la medida de lo posible. Now, obviously you can read the statement in many ways. Was it an act of timidity? or of necessary political prudence in recognizing what the constraints were. Uh, should the government have pursued a more aggressive policy on human rights uh, when they had the political capital of the outstanding victory in the plebiscite in the following election? Uh, why limit the arresting commission, the so-called, to disappearances uh, and murders, and why not include torture? The whole set of questions about the initial um, uh, uh, policies of the government on human rights that have led to some debate uh, in Chile about what they might have done. Uh, in fact, I think in some ways the first government was quite courageous. They uh, pardoned all the political prisoners, including those who were uh, involved in the attempted assassination of Pinochet in '86. Uh, there was a, a very moving public apology of the president on television when the Rettig report came out. Um, there were attempts to reform the judiciary which didn't succeed and of course there was the, the Truth Commission itself. Um, and you can understand the, the caution of the first government uh, when it came into power in 1990. 
given all the limitations, and I'll mention those a bit later. But the question that Kath raises, I think, is, is important, which is, why were the subsequent governments so cautious once democracy really had been established in Chile fairly firmly? It's rather questionable in 1990 what's going to happen. By 1994, far less so. Uh, and yet certainly the Frey government, Frey was in power for six years, um, did very little in this area apart from the uh, arrest of Contreras, but again there's a lot of pressure from the US for that. Uh, uh, President Lagos, to his credit, did, commit, did um, create a commission to investigate torture, uh, but also seemed to want to bring an end to the process uh, uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, President Bachelet uh, inaugurated uh, a museum of memory, and I think those sort of symbolic acts are extraordinarily important, but her agenda was occupied by other matters, and there wasn't much gain for progress. So I, I find it intriguing to know what Kath's opinion. Did, did these presidents think that the price basically was stability was 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 the imperative rather than the, and wanted to close the the process? Another question is: I mean, Chile has a very well structured political party system. There are parties of the left, the Socialist Party, the the PPD, the Party for the Democracy. Uh, the Christian Democrats. I mean, all these people had very prominent human rights activists in them uh, during the uh, opposition to Pinochet. And yet they spoke very little about human rights. I was being present in every campaign in Chile, apart from the, the recent one, um, every election rather, and it was interesting for me that human rights was really not an issue uh, for much, if any, debate. In fact, I think in the 1993 election it wasn't debated at all, which is rather surprising. And just curious that the parties, with the exception of the Communist Party, which possibly is not necessarily the most desirable of allies, um, was the only party that took much interest in a sense in this issue, and that I find slightly surprising. Now, one point I want to make too is that um, the story of human rights is told often very largely in terms of those who were <coughs> arguing for human rights for, for uh, demanding justice but it's also the story of those who opposed it and I think it's an interesting question issue in the question of Chile uh, because really the opposition to human rights if you like to human rights justice was extraordinarily strong and well organized and very ideological um, the right was a very powerful force is a very powerful force in Chile you can see because it's got an election elected the president 43 percent of the electorate voted for Pinochet in 88 uh, and although the first presidential candidates were pretty mediocre, at the congressional and municipal election, that level of support for parties of the right uh, was pretty well uh, around that level. So you have a very solid block of people who voted for Pinochet and were identified with the Pinochet legacy, at least for, for about 10 years. Moreover, the right in Chile controls all the mass media, basically. The business sectors, heavily influenced by some of the most extreme right-wing Catholic ideologies, Opus Dei and the Legionaries of Christ. I pick up all this knowledge from examining it, uh, DPhil students, it's a wonderful way of keeping up to date. Um, the, the church, which had played a very active role uh, in human rights developments in the military period, uh, became very conservative, not, not really identified anymore with it. Pinochet still dominated the military, he was commander-in-chief of the army, and remained so. Um, and the courts, the courts for many years were stacked with people who were uh, indifferent to, who rejected very forcefully the conclusions of the Rettig report and said it was biased and so on and so forth. So 
you know, it's interesting that this is a writer who is not at all repentant for what actually happened. Um, human rights violations either didn't take place, exaggeration of the press, or they were justified, sorry, but we had to do it, or it was blamed on internal struggles uh, inside the opposition. And it's very interesting to compare the continuity of support for Pinochet with, say, for example, the rapid fading of support for Franco in Spain. Um, now, things began to change clearly when Pinochet uh, was arrested in London and the right began to distance itself from the, the Pinochet uh, legacy, at least in terms of its the human rights abuses. And, and for the first time in 1909, the candidate, the right, Levine, spoke in favour. But what's also extremely important, and Kath traces this a bit in the book, but it really deserves emphasis, is the way the military, once Pinochet had left, began a very slow, gradual, painful process towards admitting responsibility, culpability for what actually happened. I think this is really important in order to sort of achieve some degree of like reconciliation in society at large, that the military says, sorry, what we did was not really acceptable under any circumstances at all. Uh, it's still qualified a bit by some clauses. It's much more obvious in the case of the army, far less so for the Navy, the Air Force, uh, and the Carabineros to accept that kind of position. But there really has been a sea change in the attitude of the military uh, in the, uh, the last few years. But it really wasn't until Pinochet was involved in financial transaction uh, irregularities um, that makes it sound far too modest for what he was actually up to, um, that the, the right began to move away from him uh, in a, a very imp important way. One question I, I ask Kath continually, I think she gets a bit cross with the question, is that how far Chile compares with other countries? I mean, I don't, you can't have some kind of rank table in the sense of, you know, from good to, to lousy. Um, but it, it, it really is an extraordinarily difficult issue to resolve when you look at it comparatively. I mean, think of what's actually happened elsewhere in, in countries that have not had um, uh, international tribunals after defeat in war like Germany or Japan. Um, Spain, Portugal, Greece, I mean, nothing really. Only now in Spain has there been some kind of movement uh, on the issue. Very little I'm aware of in Portugal uh, or Greece. Uh, Argentina moved dramatically but then had backtracks and forward movements again uh, uh, and so on. Uh, Peru of course has its own way of mm. proceeding but not much has happened in Brazil. Um, Uruguay has seen significant change but it's taken 20 years for that. Now um, I think it's interesting because it does actually indicate really how extraordinarily difficult uh, this whole process of achieving justice for human rights abuses is uh, in practically in almost sort of any uh, society and um, you know on the figures that uh, Kath produces in the observatory the number of, of, of uh, abusers on trial <coughs> um, uh, uh, convicted under investigation uh, is, is comparatively high um, can we assume that we're now in the, the good days of continuing progress uh, in the trials of human rights offenders in Chile um, my reading of the book is that although there has been considerable advance, continuing progress is not inevitable. Um, there's the kind of rather erratic nature of some of the judicial rulings. Uh, the issue is not high on the political agenda. Uh, if you look at all the opinion polls, human rights is numbered quite low in terms of people's preoccupations. 
And of course, Chile now has a president uh, from the right. Um, two final points. Uh, one is it's interesting to look at how other rights have developed in Chile. Uh, Chile has not had, for all its constitutional and legal tradition, uh, a, a very particularly um, progressive uh, um, position on things like gender rights, gay rights, indigenous rights, uh, and so on, and certainly not on labor rights under the current, uh, since 1990. Uh, and one would have thought that maybe increasing judicial activism uh, in the human rights area would actually move over to encompass other areas, um, but it hasn't actually happened at all. I mean, it's, it's very slow uh, and very erratic progress. I mean, Chile was very late in abolishing censorship of even some of the kind of mildly uh, films that would have offended Catholic sensibilities. So <clears throat> you still have a quite conservative and passive judiciary, which does raise the question of were they involved in human rights trials in order, in a sense, to sort of redeem themselves, to uh, show that they could actually um, uh, help to establish the rule of law and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and of course this contrasts this judicial pacifism contrasts very strongly with judicial activism in a number of other Latin American countries like Argentina, uh, Colombia, Costa Rica, Brazil and so on. Um, I have one final point. I'm not quite sure how to phrase <coughs> this particular point or even if it's relevant but nevertheless here goes. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis <coughs> recently on the whole concept of memory uh, and the need for some sort of shared or common memory in order to achieve uh, reconciliation. This has been the theme of uh, two very impressive books by Steve Stern, uh, uh, for example. It, it doesn't relate directly to the question of a book about trials and legal systems, but obviously it is a wider question. Um, I, I must confess a bit sort of sceptical about um, uh, the, the, the possibility of achieving some sort of agreed memory shared by the whole fan of sectors uh, on the horrors of what actually happened and the need <coughs> to move forward uh, in a new way. Uh, you, again, looking at Spain, <coughs> you can argue that it's been quite successful in forgetting the whole thing for many years and only recently coming up again. That's a very sort of equivocal point on which to, to finish. Uh, um, it really has been actually a pleasure to read the book and I'm very grateful to have had the chance to uh, make this uh, commentary uh, on, on Cass' work. Thank you. Thanks very much to Alan. Alan has seen this project through from beginning to end, so of course it's a great, a great delight for me to, to, to hear his, his views and to see that he's, he's read the whole thing twice now. He's read the PhD and he's clearly read the book. He's it's underlined. Underli underli <laughs> so Alan's been sending me sort of um, over the last, the last days sort of, sort of his comments and the things he's going to say. So it's, it's great to have someone so engaged with the work and of course someone that's such a, a, an eminent expert on Chile. So I'm very grateful to him, also to Diego and to the, the Transitional Justice Network. For, for being able to be here today and, and talk a little bit about it. Um, Alan worked so very hard that he also made some suggestions about what I might say, so I'm going to structure what I, I was going to say um, around what, what Alan proposed, which is just to say a bit about how the, the, the work, the project, and then the book came about, and how the research is structured, and then I do want, I want to pick up on some of the points that, that Alan does make. 
And in terms of, of where the book comes from, in a sense, I always say, you know, the, the project, this is my own personal <coughs> Pinochet effect. You know, the Pinochet effect was the title we used for a, a conference where we looked at what had been the aftermath of the Pinochet um, arrest around the world. And, and in, in, in a very personal sense, th this, is, this is why I'm kind of still in Chile and doing, doing all of this. Because I first went to live in Chile between 1996 and 99, which meant, of course, that I was there during the period when Pinochet was arrested here in London. And I very vividly remember still the strangeness, at least to me, of local reactions. So I was working at that time as a community organizer, not, not at all in the academic um, sphere, and living in a, a población, a, a fairly marginal housing district on the outskirts of, of the capital. And I was at home with my adoptive family one night when a man ran down, there's a very narrow sort of Dickensian street, and a man ran down the street banging with his fist simultaneously on the doors on both sides of the street. You, you can manage to do that then. <laughs> <laughs> announcing to all and sundry that Pinochet was dead. This was, this was the rumour that actually went, first went around in Chile the night of, of Pinochet's arrest. And that was not enough of a shock, of course, but uh, in fact it was much more believable than the real truth, as we, as we <laughs> discover the next day on the news. No, he's not, not Pinochet isn't dead, but he's been arrested. And I think that we found that much more um, um, surprising and shocking. One paper concentrated on it, the great relief that he was in fact still alive, and they ran an oversized banner headline, Pinochet Immortal. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact of his arrest seemed even more inconceivable um, in Chile and that was maybe the, the first time that I appreciated the full force of what I knew intellectually which was the very high amount of residual support and admiration even for, for Pinochet and for the regime in Chile so here was a community, a group of people who really at the bottom of the, the ladder this, in no sense would this group of people uh, be people who had benefited from the economic um, um, advances of the Pinochet period, but the community split right down the middle, and some people put up posters of Pinochet in the window and Mijen Eral, and we're, we're very um, kind of um, aggressive really towards the whole idea of what was going on in London, and other people rushing over to shake my hand and congratulating me, saying thank you very much, being, <laughs> being of course the only English person that, that anyone knew. And I remember a young, a young man from my youth group actually sprayed in foot high letters on the outside of the parish compound. Um, Inglaterra ejemplo de justicia <laughs> <laughs> which went down very badly with all the Irish priests who are <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was intriguing so, so those, those very different sensibilities were, were intriguing to me and themselves you know how something how someone period is constructed as absolute evil in one setting and yet praised and tolerated in, in the very place where atrocities took place and, and amongst people who you would see very much as having been on the receiving end of that. So how, how do you grapple in that kind of setting with questions of repudiation, questions of justice? And that's really what, what spurred me to want to find out more. So how, how, how I went about that, the methodology is described in the book, but basically I think the underlying aim was to see what patterns emerged over retrospective justice in different settings. Who, if anyone, was pushing for more action on accountability? What they believed could be achieved by cases at such a distance from events? And what determined whether or not they were successful? And if they were successful, whether the effects were the desired ones or possibly some undesired ones as well. And the interest in this 
particular issue for other post-conflict settings, for other post-authoritarian settings, I think does make this more than just an academic question in, in the very limited um, sense that some people use that term. I remember the last time I presented specifically on this in, in Oxford at a conference organised by Phil and others on transitional justice worldwide, it was again striking to me that just before I started to talk about Latin America and what was changing in Latin America, the door opened and in poured all the African delegates, I think literally all the African delegates from the, the, the conference particularly, to listen to what was going on in Latin America, which they saw very much as an experience to watch for signs as to what might happen in future with their own usually more recent transitional justice dilemmas. And very predictably, those who thought trials were a good idea wanted to know how they could make them happen. Those who didn't think trials were a good idea wanted to know how they could avoid them. <laughs> and everyone saw that Latin American experience, which of course was in many ways the pilot for the Truth Commission plus Amnesty model, as now entering a different phase. And it's a phase that does require perhaps some more general conclusions to be drawn. And so rather than indulging only in, in thick description, from which you can only really conclude, you know, here's what happened in Chile, here's what happened in El Salvador. I did want to try and structure the findings in some kind of framework that could be intelligibly transferable to other settings. So, so what are the elements, what are the factors whose particular balance seems to determine the trajectory the justice issue takes in particular societies? That isn't, of course, a recipe for, for prediction and much less a recipe for export, but it does suggest what can we track, what can we look out for if we want to look at essentially this same phenomenon in different settings. So the theory that's in the book, it isn't just in there because it had to be, because that's all part of the PhD. It, it, it was really essential, I think, to the aims of this particular bit of research to re-theorise a little before embarking on it, because here is essentially a new phenomenon. Transitional justice literature and transitional justice practice up until the 1990s basically predicted that formal justice can be sealed off by amnesty and won't re-emerge. This is not what was supposed to happen. <coughs> But in the 90s, it does re-emerge with some force in some places and not in others. And there were basically, at that stage, there were three you know, most popular explanations available for that. First was this, the justice cascade, a la Catherine Sigging, or, or the Pinochet effect, as Naomi Ariazza calls it, quoting Roberto Garreton, I think, that says these are basically outside-in explanations. Late justice change is international activism. It's international law trumping national sovereignty. That's one available um, explanation. Secondly, the judicial activism, the Garçon effect explanation. The idea that what's happening here is local judges are galvanised by the sight of a Spanish judge getting good press for pro-accountability actions, making them look reactionary by contrast. And, and the idea that domestic judges are stung in some way into proving that we can wash our own dirty linen at home, we don't need this to be done by an external, much less by the, the former colonial power in the case of Spain. And that those judges are more able and more prepared to do something domestically, partly as a result of these major institutional reforms carried out under a democratisation rubric, which in Latin America particularly often included substantial judicial reform. And thirdly, there's a, a set of explanations that's about domestic victim or survivor activism, activism that this is justice from below. And that, I think, overlaps with judicialization of politics, explanations, mobilization literature. Here you have political, legal opportunity structures constructed by domestic groups, sometimes acting strategically in concert with international civil society, international human rights organizations. They're reaching around the blocked domestic channels and they're using regional or international venues to put pressure on their own governments. So with, with the thesis and then the book, the idea was very much to test those 
different um, kinds of explanation by taking a, a quite a detailed look at how the outside inside, the institutional reform and the actor-driven dynamics do interact in these particular cases. And I think the distinctively political science aspect of the approach, rather than, for example, treating this as a legal story best traced through case verdicts alone, has two main facets, and, and they're the classic ones. The first is that we need to attend to both structures and actors. So how the institutional change is driven by individual choices and interpretation and affects individual choices. And as important as how structures really are is how they are perceived to be. And an example of that would be that in Chile, change over cases, sub substantial change in the outcome of cases, came in the context of a formerly very little changed constitutional, institutional and legislative structure, judicial reform notwithstanding. Chile shows that judges clearly could change outcomes on this particular issue through little more than a change of will. So what requires explanation then is why they should suddenly want to start to produce new outcomes. In El Salvador, by contrast, the structures did change very substantially, but the outcomes haven't yet. So judicial culture has to be important. What people are willing or able to do within the margins of interpretation that the structures impose clearly can change. <coughs> and the second was to understand legal processes as political processes. This is not a judge-driven story, at least in my interpretation and essentially taking a frame derived from Tilly about the framing, the construction of opportunity structures and how the judicial branch can become the target of pressure and engine of change if the legislative channels, the executive channels and even the public opinion channels seem to be blocked. So a minority group that believes it's right but doesn't believe it has the political capital to force or to push for a change, a change in the transitional settlement um, through the, 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 the traditional political actors turning to the courts as a way of, 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 of driving that change. <coughs> Alan suggested I should also talk about development since, since the book was issued, and there are lots, and there are so many that if I start now, that's maybe where we'll get stuck. So I think I'd, I'd like to leave that, if I may, for questions. I, w I would like to point out, she won't thank me for this, but we have with us Karina Fernandez here is a Chilean human rights lawyer who worked for the, until very recently for the Human Rights Programme of the Chilean Interior Ministry, and she's someone who can tell us all and tell, tell you individually a lot about what's happening with cases now. So I would, I would uh, encourage those of you who want to know very specific things that Karina is, is also someone you could talk to. Um, just for now, what I want to say is, is just say a few things about Alan's very perceptive comments and then to see what, what does emerge from, from, from yourselves and from, from the room. In talking about these major features, you know, what's the post-transitional framework as distinct from the transitional justice framework that, that came before it? And in terms of the distinctive characteristics I say post-transitional justice has as distinct from the early variety, I think two of them are particularly important. Firstly, the emphasis on this emphasis on deepening rather than just on minimally achieving formal democracy is very noticeable. So Juan Mendes at the, the conference I talked about said, you know, back then they told us the options were democracy or justice because we couldn't have both. And that may well have been true back then. But once democracy appears to be safely installed, the bar is inevitably raised. And some people will turn that argument around and say, well, we can't sensibly continue to claim to have a meaningful democracy unless we can show that a basic justice capacity is part of it. Secondly, that this is non-state actors. That's very different from the early transitional settlements that were almost exclusively um, state-driven and state-negotiated. These are minority groups. Nowhere in Latin America is this the outcome of, of, of civil society, you know, um, 
hordes of people suddenly coming out to the streets and clamouring for change. It's very small minority groups that are driving this change. And these are the same groups whose maximalist demands were dampened down at the time of, of, of transition by the incoming democratic politicians who were very worried about showing that they could manage radical demands and they could preserve governability. And that's very noticeable in the case of Chile. It's the incoming constitutional government who, who really dampens down the, the outstanding claims. And I think Manuel Antonio Garretón shows it's very common at transitions for these kinds of demands to be quite ably suppressed by what those groups see as their own side, rather than by the traditional enemy, if you like. And that, in turn, also damages the confidence those actors have in the new democratic government. And it's part of the reason the human rights movement in Latin America in general, I think, has had such a hard time losing the habits of anti-statism and of suspicion of, of authorities that it was obviously always going to have under authoritarian regimes. And Martina Abrego has written very perceptively about this. You know, he says, a modern human rights sector needs to be able to see its way towards selective cooperation and selective engagement with the state. And often the old guard human rights groups that I know well anyway, can't forgive what they see as a transitional betrayal by centre or even by leftist governments. And for El Salvador, one of the interviews you know, says that the FMLN just sold human rights on the bargaining table along with everything else. And that to them is unforgivable and that's conditioned the relationship they're able to have with the new state even under an FMLN government now. So that's maybe a broader point about how this affects the, the human rights um, scenario in the present day. Alan also talks about the generalised demand created by the Pinochet arrest in 1998 here in London, and it does clearly create a wave of excitement everywhere. But the fact that that wave meets a very different fate in different places is what requires explanation. And it's the reason for selecting these two quite disparate cases in the book, Chile and El Salvador. So here we have a roughly similar time elapsed since transition. We have the two broadest um, drafted amnesty um, laws in the region. And distinctive, specific attempts after 98 to use the Pinochet precedent in both settings externally to kickstart domestic cases from the outside. So you have people consciously saying, we'll use the Pinochet case to get the case universe moving in Chile. We'll use um, a similar thing, we'll generate the US civil claims, and that will do the same for El Salvador. And it works in one place, but not in the other. And that's what shows that at the very least, I think, international activity is not a sufficient cause or explanation for this. We need to look more closely at domestic histories and how this external um, impulse is interacting with what's already there on the ground. Talking about the contrasts in findings, Alan mentions that violence in El Salvador was poorly documented. That's, of course, particularly true in terms of the very specific kinds of forensic evidentiary <coughs> quality proof that you need for formal justice processes to have any chance of success. And that's a big distinction, I think, needs to be applied when we think about how this framework might play out in other settings. So we all know, or most people accept, that there was an attempted genocide in Rwanda. It's hardly obscure, it's hardly little known. But what we can prove in a Western-style court of law about what specific criminal acts were carried out by specific identifiable individuals is a very different question. So this particular formal way of channeling demands for justice may only work under certain conditions. And those are conditions which are more likely to exist in the southern cone of Latin America than in the rest of the region. So in the southern cone, there were active human rights organizations able to generate official paper trails and take legal, specifically legally channeled actions during repression itself. But I think those conditions, and we're also, what we're seeing in the more recent period, is that those conditions can eventually be met or, or can emerge in apparently less propitious settings. So the terror archive discovered in Paraguay in the mid-2000s has provided a lot of missing pieces for trials in other countries. 
so has a police archive that was recently discovered in Guatemala, and so, of course, has the U.S. National Security Archive, which has been sifting through and publishing U.S. State Department documents and embassy cables since long before WikiLeaks was even, <laughs> was even thought about. <coughs> and in terms of Alan's observation that it, it's easier to lobby in the U.S. than in El Salvador about El Salvador in relation to the recent civil claims, I think that depends very much on when you are talking about it was certainly true during the civil war in El Salvador, mainly because not only was the domestic context murderously dangerous for this kind of legally framed activism, but also because the US was driving and certainly bankrolling the war itself. And one of the objections to post-transitional trials that, that comes more easily if you do see it as an outside-in process is the objection that this is an, essentially an outside-in position on societies that left to themselves are happier with other, more context-appropriate ways of dealing with legacies. It's a big debate with respect to how the ICC is operating for Africa, and perhaps Phil might pick that up, but it's, I think it's certainly a mistake for the Latin American context I'm talking about to see this as fundamentally an externally driven process, particularly a mistake I think to see it as a US driven process. The US was never that interested in international norm driven accountability as opposed to, to domestic kinds and is certainly not interested in it post 2001 when of course it would itself be, be in the frame and I think there's a big hole in that international norm cascade argument which is the constant massive opt-out and opposition from the US to the idea of universally binding norms that can outweigh national discretion. And particularly with the Salvador civil claims in the US um, in 2000 and afterwards, the claimants report in the book how it was unexpectedly difficult for them to find US cause lawyers who were prepared to take on those civil claims in the States, precisely because they saw it as calling into question U.S. foreign policy in Central America from the 80s in ways that they felt would touch on present-day sensibilities about the more recent incarnation of, 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 of that particular um, vision of the world, if you like. <coughs> and in terms, of, and finish to, to draw towards a close, in terms of Alan's point about how Chile stacks up comparatively, I think there is little doubt that this is the most complete national level, national level response that I know about in modern times to past atrocity. We've now got 777 former agents on trial or under investigation for disappearances, political executions or torture. And if you take the most kind of graphic comparison you could possibly take, at the same distance from regime change in Nazi Germany, only around 1,000 cases have been brought and 400 people judged individually criminally responsible for crimes whose scale is immeasurably greater. And this is a regime that fell and was roundly repudiated and defeated almost everywhere, something which is also true of South African apartheid or Soviet communism, but is not true of post-authoritarian Latin America, and I think that's very significant. Uh, and just, just to, to finish with picking up this point about um, what's, what would be more or less, or what's the right thing, when, what, how late is late, how, what's the norm, normative kind of a comparison that we're making with, with this argument. I think that to, to, to say that the starting point for this work is really empirical rather than normative. I'm not asking why didn't trials happen sooner, but, but what's going on if they are now happening in some places and not in others? So it can't only be, again, international context driven. The unevenness means there are other political developments in the venues that are either driving trials or driving this interaction of the domestic conditions with um, the international context change. And what we get is the dismantling of some transitional domestic settlements, but not all. So Brazil, another case we could talk about. And it's looking for, in looking for explanations of that difference that I think this kind of pair comparison is useful. So the contrast between Chile and El Salvador usefully point out what might be going on 
You can generate an explanatory hypothesis that you can then test. This notable lack of legally framed human rights pressure and of continuity of cases, the paper trail from pre- to post-transitional um, justice systems in El Salvador, helps you to see how important those actually are in driving change. So where you have them as in Chile, it's much easier to, to, to get change um, through, pushed through, if you like. Then the, the so what factor, um, which single case studies would face a lot of, you know, what does this tell us beyond just telling us about the place we're thinking about? The, I think two case studies also have some of those, those, those problems, but it does allow us to think about what late justice means or what late justice can lead to, and that's maybe some of what we're grappling with now with the subsequent project, which is the observatory, where we're trying to look at when you do have late human rights trials, what does it mean, what does it change, or, or what are the impacts that it seems to have? And you could take a very functionalist approach and say maybe the difference in this happening in some places and not others is that it only happens where it needs to. Maybe for repudiation, which did happen in South Africa, which did happen in, in the USSR in terms of the authoritarian period, and it didn't happen yet in some parts of Latin America. And that kind of repudiation of, of the regime and its crimes certainly needs to happen also in Central America, but it hasn't happened, at least not through trials. So you could say, well, has it happened some other way? Is that why we're not seeing trials? Because this, if, if it's driven by this, this necessary dynamic that's already been answered, that, that would, would, would tell us something. Well, you have found in Central America institutional refounding, institutional redesign. That aspect, if you like, of needed to change was addressed by internationally brokered democratic engineering. But you haven't had specific renunciation of human rights violations or of political violence, and it may not be coincidental that you have very high levels of social violence and of security force violence remaining um, in Central America, by contrast. So what, what can trials produce beyond and above these declarations of individual criminal responsibility? Some level of victim redress, clearly. But that's maybe not a sufficient social justification. It, in essentially, it privatises issues, saying, well, we need to do this because it's, it's fulfilling something that victims have always needed. That, in it, essentially, and, and a lot of the discourse in, in Chile tends to do, is to privatise this issue as effectively perpetrators versus survivors. And the rest of us are, are indifferent, the rest of us are, are onlookers, if anything at all. Of course those people have a right to truth, of course those people have a right to redress. But as if they didn't want it, the rest of us would not be, be pushing for it. In any, in, for any other, in a, other reason, if you like. So the question, I think, is whether there's any sort of socio-politically driven need or, or, or responsibility or, um, or impulse to do it anyway, irrespective of, of whether victims are, are, are claiming it. The state, of course, preserves the right to prosecute other crimes independently of the expressed desire of victims in the name of the community as a whole, in the name of society as a whole, to reassert the bounds of what's acceptable or what's normative behaviour. And in Latin America, the generalised reluctance of the state, other than in the case of Argentina, and in Argentina sometimes in quite unhelpful ways, to actually get behind the human rights prosecutions has probably reduced that part of the impact, that part of what trials can achieve, which is about repudiating the notion of authoritarian power holding and the notion of the exercise of, of, of politics through violence. That possibly has been less... Um, less um, sustained by the present wave of trials than it might have been had they been state imposed rather than civil society imposed. So, you know, does do trials, and I'll finish with questions, which is always a thing to do, but, but we are left with this dilemma. Do trials produce democratisation or does democratisation produce trials? 
are we now seeing trials because in some places the democratic um, framework is consolidated to a point where it's almost natural that they should happen? This ceases to be a special issue in a sense, and, and it's being dealt with as any other issue would be. Or is there a sense in which trials can, can provide a push towards some of the, the outstanding um, um, democratisation advances that we still need to see? Do trials change people's perceptions about the acceptability of authoritarian regimes? It's a big question, and we haven't had the opportunity previously to answer it because we haven't had that experience to look at. And we're doing some opinion poll work now um, in the recent period um, about what people, the general kind of perception is of, of how, of the trials that are presently ongoing in Chile. And you know that's that's work I can I can um, send people, and I have kind of details of where you can see it. But basically, we find quite contradictory things. So. Over just over, we're finding that around 60% of, of people are supporting the idea that the trials that are currently <coughs> ongoing should continue. So there isn't this great majority demand to shut down the trials. And you find now that maybe 75, around 75, 80% of people saying yes, Pinochet knew all about human rights violations. Um, yes, the civilian, the civilians who were part of the regime also share some responsibility. And of course, that's a more interesting political point for the present day because many of those people, including the president <coughs> of the Senate, are now still in positions of, 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 of pu still in publicly elected positions, something which the direct military perpetrators, of course, are not. Um, and in a similar way, we're looking a little bit about what's the impact of all of this on the judicial framework and on judicial treatment of international law. And this is where you ask whether the treatment of past human rights crimes has anything to do with or can positively um, affect the way the judicial system deals with internationally framed rights claims about other issues. So again, does judicial reform produce human rights trials or can human rights trials be a vehicle for perfecting judicial reform and can it be a vehicle for forcing judges to confront quite directly issues about, for example, the, the, the hierarchy of international norms over constitutional norms or domestic legislation such as amnesty where those things are in direct conflict. It's clearer that they are in direct conflict around these issues. And one of the things we're now exploring in Chile with some colleagues is, is, is whether the judges shifted first, if you like, in their receptivity to international law around this issue, and then we can now expect to see them changing in, in terms of how they deal with other rights issues, or whether, in fact, it's, it's, it's a broader and more simultaneous and parallel process. Thank you.